0: everybody, welcome back to the Peace and Liberty podcast. I've been meaning to revamp the podcast for a while now, but it's good to be back. I'm joined today by my good friend Kyle Anslone, and we're, we're going to discuss uh, the humanitarian crisis in Yemen. Uh, for those who don't know, um, Yemen is the poorest country in the Middle East with a population of a little over 28 million. Um, an estimated 10 million will be dead by the end of the year. Um, years of drone strikes have psychologically conditioned people to be scared of planes flying over their heads. And when these drone strikes hit, schools and bridges, et cetera, it makes it that much more difficult to get to a hospital. Uh, Last time I checked, an average of 150 Yemeni children are dying every day from starvation or other causes. Millions have been displaced. Uh, The price of food's more than doubled since the Yemeni Civil War began in 2011. So there's a lot to discuss, but um, donate to us on Patreon at patreon.com slash the Peace and Liberty podcast. And also donate to Kyle at patreon.com slash foreign policy focus. Uh, so maybe a good place to start how's it going Kyle let me introduce you
1: (laughs) yeah thanks man it's going well and uh, the only thing I'll just throw in there is I don't know about that 10 million people being dead by the end of uh, 2018 there's certainly about 10 million people who will be like in the the starvation will be suffering from famine at that point where they really don't have food to eat Um, you know this is adults could survive a little bit like this, but, you know, they really struggle. But the old and the very young, uh, you know, this is when, like, the babies will just start dropping dead, even though already, you know, their uh, estimates. uh, uh, Ali Alhamed was just on the Moderate Rebel podcast a few weeks ago uh, saying that about 100,000 children have died since the start of this war.
0: Which is just insane. I mean, about half their country starving just sounds unfathomable. But I guess a good place to start is, uh, Saudi Arabia recently, there was a journalist killed and the explanation of what happened didn't really make much sense. They said it was quote unquote, an accident. And Trump's response, despite saying that quote, there's been deception and there's been lies still considers Saudi Arabia a great ally. So maybe you could touch on that and how that relates to everything.
1: Yeah. So, um, I guess just to kind of start with the beginning, I think it was October 2nd, this guy, uh, a Washington Post columnist who was living uh, at that time in, uh, I believe Virginia, living in the United States. was looking to get uh, either a divorce certificate or a marriage certificate. Either way, he had gotten divorced. Was now with his fiance, but I think he wanted to make it, you know, official by Saudi Arabia. I'm not, I'm not sure why he felt the need to do this, but that's what he was trying to do. At the end of September, he shows up to the Saudi consulate in Istanbul, and they tell him to come back in four days, and he, you know, he could do that paperwork then. Four days later, he shows up with his fiance. His fiance is told to wait outside while he goes in. He goes in and never comes back out. Pretty quickly, the Turkish government uh you know makes a big deal about this in the international press, giving the saying that there's you know this very gruesome story they put out that this guy was assassinated and then cut into pieces. Uh you know, they, they say that he was tortured. And they claim that there was video and audio evidence of this killing. Uh, that still has not been seen yet, but the Turkish government maintains uh, there was some question as to whether that video came from his iWatch. Um, but but this was definitely a guy who uh, was a dissenter to the Saudi government. Now, not libertarian dissenter like you or me. I'm not you know trying to make him out to be any kind of revolutionary who is really going to fight for the you know real equality in in civil liberties in saudi arabia but was certainly against the ruling family and you know wanted a a somewhat more liberal saudi arabia i think you see him as kind of a motherhood brother type uh looking for more of a dictatorship in saudi arabia that's maybe a little bit more uh, accountable to the people um so, kind of just to get back on that, um, he knew that you know he may have been a target. There's even a story, I believe it came from the Washington Post, that a couple intelligence officials had said uh, that they had intelligence intercepts which suggested that Saudi Arabia was trying to uh, lure this uh, columnist uh, Jamal Khashishi uh, or Khashagi i don't know people say a couple different ways uh back to saudi arabia so uh, he he would have reason to you know kind of fear for his safety and maybe that's why he went to this uh pacific consulate uh but and that may mean also that he was kind of prepared and maybe was did have a recording device on him or something maybe to kind of leverage for his safety really hoping to get these documents and get out alive um So then uh, within a couple days after that, the next piece of evidence we get again from the Turkish government is some photographs suggesting that a 15-man assassination team arrived on a private plane from Saudi Arabia, went to the consulate, and then went to whoever heads the consulate home in Turkey. Uh, both you know these places are both in, in Istanbul and then leave the country during the days of uh, October 2nd when uh, Keshagi was supposed to have been uh, killed within that consulate. Uh, a couple of these guys are very top advisors to the crown prince of Saudi Arabia, who is believed to you know, be the main uh, power broker of the country. His name is Mohammed bin Salman. Uh, he is the king or the son, excuse me, of the king, who uh, some view is more of a figurehead because he is uh, apparently has somewhat of a uh, disabled mental state at this point, King Salman. And so his son, Mohammed bin Salman, or otherwise known as MBS, is pretty common phrase, Uh is seen to run much of the country he's the head of aramco he's the head of the uh, defense department i believe he has given himself several other uh, titles that used to belong to you know several different princes uh, of the kingdom um so anyways we have uh you know the, the story developing and a, a lot of the media kind of pits on the trump angle for not being tough enough uh, against saudi arabia and demanding answers the saudis were just kind of saying we don't know what happened he came and he went uh, for the first week and a half or so after this guy's disappearance. It wasn't until about a week later we start to get reports. Uh, I think one from CNN said that Saudi Arabia was, you know, willing to cop to the fact that this guy died in the consulate. They wanted to call it an interrogation gone wrong. Eventually, I, I think it was yesterday morning, we, our Friday afternoon, excuse me, is when Saudi Arabia made the announcement that uh, this guy, Kashagi did actually die in the consulate. No announcement of where his body was. Or really any explanation, just saying that an argument broke out, there was a fist fight, and this guy died. So I guess they're suggesting that he pit the fight with these fit you know, this 15-man assassination team, this 6 year old man who I mean, you know, it definitely was not in great shape if you look at pictures of him. You know, he he wasn't the, the pitcher of health. And so it's pretty likely that he did not pit this fight. And uh, you know, it seems likely at this point that it was a murder and not uh, you know, just some kind of mistake.
0: So, when did our relationship start with Saudi Arabia? Because they seem to be the one country that all past presidents will stick up for, no matter. You know, pe- people say it was the Saudis that did nine eleven, versus obviously had nothing to do with uh, Iraq and Afghanistan. When did that relationship start, and why is it why is it so hard to break that relationship?
1: Yeah, I mean the US has had a long standing relationship with the Al Saud family which, you know, the the uh, Al Saud was a matriarch of the family, his six sons, I believe this is his final son that is now ruling Solomon, uh Saudi Arabia and then we're looking at getting into, you know, the grandsons of that family. Uh, Mohammed bin Salman is in le- at least in line to assume the throne next. Um so, you know, we, we've had that relationship for, for a long time. Um, I'm not that, uh, you know, really on the early, you know, days of formation of the Middle East. You know, you have kind of what goes on in World War II, be kind of wanted to be influential and in kind of drawing the lines in the Middle East and saying up different ruling families and stuff like that. Um, but, you know, if we look at the, just pre 9 11, you know, maybe looking at the first Gulf War, uh, one of the situations there was the Americans used Saudi Arabia as a place to stage their air war against the Iraqi government and use, uh, you know, through the sanctions pressure during the Clinton years. And this is a, a big problem for Osama bin Laden and something he uses is to recruit people. Into his uh, Al Qaeda terrorist jihadist worldview, he says, "Look, they're they're set up on the holy land of Islam, and they're you know just killing I- Islamic children and Muslim children all day long in Iraq for absolutely no reason." Uh, We have sold the Saudis a lot of weapons throughout the year. Uh, You know, there's this implicit deal where Saudis, you know, buy their oil in American and sell their oil in American dollars, which is very important to keeping uh, the world currency. And I'm sure this is something that, you know, you, you understand it and could explain better than I could, why the world reserve currency is so important, but it's very important for the empire to be, you know, be the one that sets the interest rates and all this other stuff for the rest of the world. And, um, uh, really, I think especially since 2001, when you have the United States defense budget absolutely blow up and, you know, has since been out of control, uh, all these weapons makers are, you know, increasingly, increasingly powerful and have bought off different sanders. And so Lockheed Martin it, you know, wants to sell Saudi Arabia jets. Uh, Raytheon wants to sell them missiles and all these other weapons companies have all these other products that they could sell Saudi Arabia if the State Department it approves and so this means that you had to buy off the senators, you had to buy off the State Department officials, and just the whole Washington class is now uh, very influenced by Middle Eastern money. Uh, there's a great episode of the Scott Horton Show, and maybe we could throw this up in the show notes page. Um, libertarianinstitute.org, you can find my show there, my daily news roundup there, as well as Scott Horton show you know it's really his institute and uh on on his show they really discuss the saudi money and where it comes from and how they buy influence in the united states congress it's quite amazing you know how cheap our congressmen come how easy it is to get them to overlook a genocide in yemen in order to continue to you know approve these weapons sales and of course you know we all know the democrats are just as bought off as the republicans uh i think jared kushner has a little bit more of like a cozy uh, that's the president's son-in-law relationship with Mohammed bin Salman. And I think it's part friendship and not just bought off. But, you know, the Clinton Foundation got an awful uh, few million donations uh, from, uh, you know, the Saudi royal family. So it's not like they weren't bought and paid for as well.
0: Right. And the reason I wanted to start off start off with Saudi Arabia, obviously, is because they're responsible for a lot of the pain in Yemen. Um So we talked about this crisis back in March. That was uh, Peace and Liberty podcast episode 19, which I'll link to. You also have a foreign policy focus episode that's 159, which is a Yemen cheat sheet. I go back to that episode all the time if I just want to touch up um, on the details. But like I said, we talked about this back in March and clearly things have gotten much worse. Can you start off by pulling up the live UA map of Yemen and giving us a brief recap of what's going on? Uh, Maybe show us all the different uh, competing factions in the country and how they're divided up. And for anyone that wants to look at this map, a Live UA Map is great—a great resource. You can find that at LiveUAMap.com, and for this map, it's going to be Yemen.LiveUAMap.com.
1: Yeah, uh, I just can I add two things at the end to the Khashoggi uh, saga, and yes, that please. is, uh, first of all, that. If, Kushner called uh, MBS a couple of days after this happened to kind of ask him what was going on, them having a friendship. But John Bolton, uh, the national security advisor and one of the most hawkish people in the entire world, you know, uh, was on that call as well. And so maybe this signals that not only uh, it, MBS may be in a little bit of trouble in Saudi Arabia, but also uh, Jared Kushner, you know, maybe has fallen out a little bit out of love with the president, and he's had a lot of influence on Trump's uh, foreign policy, especially for the Middle East. And then the other kind of detail that's emerged in all of this is that the Saudi ambassador to the United States is Prince uh, Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman's younger brother prince khalid and he was recalled back to saudi arabia and will be given a new position and so a lot of people think that maybe mohammed bin salman is actually in a a, a bit of a pickle and uh it could be replaced by his younger brother um as far as what's going on in yemen let's see i got the live map here although um it's not giving me battle lines i think the uh, sites uh little. Well, uh struggled on my laptop with also doing this um
0: i think uh, you mentioned on uh, the last episode here. we talked that the houthis kind of control the northeastern and then there's like two other yeah. factions
1: yeah i could go ahead and just uh generally talk with this map here can you see it on the screen share yep see it now. oh there it goes refreshing uh can you edit a little bit or do you want me to just start talk- keep talking oh go for it ma'am. all right so Kind of what you got going on here is Yemen's located on the southwest corner of the Arabian Peninsula. If you look at the uh, eastern, like probably two thirds of the country is really sparsely populated and almost the whole population center is in this north, uh western portion of the country, and that's controlled by the Houthis. Actually, the last time I read the estimate, I was very surprised to hear that about 80% of the Yemen's population, even though it's a very small portion of the area of the country, is actually in the Houthi controlled areas. Uh, The big area of the country, Sana'a, is the capital. This, again, controlled by the Houthis. Where the fighting is going on right now, is there some fighting on the I would guess, eastern edge here, the Houthi territory with uh, some Saudi and UAE bad forces that are, you know, either mercenaries, uh, hired Al-Qaeda fighter, or some Yemeni tribal fighters who want to fight against the Houthis. As you can see, there's a good amount of fighting going on around the Saudi southern border. um, And the Houthis have actually pushed into Saudi Arabia several times. Uh, There's some fighting along the southern city at Taiz here. It's been partially surrounded by the Houthis for a few years now and actually has not fallen yet. And then the main fighting and the most important area is this port city of Hadeda. Um, Hadeda was controlled and has been for, I think, two and a half years now by the Houthis. Um, that is, you know, kind of the breakaway faction in the, this Yemen's uh, war. And the port of Hadeda is so critical because it's the only port in Yemen that's able to offload the large container ships. Now, this has been hampered since the early days of the war, since Saudi Arabia bombed the cranes on the dots and then for two years prevented any cranes from being delivered, even though some were bought by the United States. However, the Saudi blockade prevented those uh uh, cranes from getting to the port. The port, the cranes that are there now, unfortunately, are mobile cranes, and so they can't move quite as much freight and cargo, uh, which again really slows down the ability, uh, for you know, food aid and fuel to be offloaded in, uh, to Saudi uh, into Yemen, excuse me, from these ships. Uh, however, uh, the that port is now in that city of Hadeda is now under siege, and um. You know, it's not looking good. Uh, the The Saudi bad forces are attacking the, the city from the south. They haven't yet taken the airport, which is on the south edge of the city, but they have cut the main highway going into Hadeda from the capital city of Sana'a. And so that was seen as an important strategic advantage. Um So the the Houthis have no real air force or anything like that. They have been able to produce some drones, and they do have some missiles, but they're inaccurate, and I don't know how many they have left in supply. They're actually missiles that were uh, bought by South Yemen when Yemen was split into two uh, during the Cold War. And then, you know, they've changed hands a couple of times, but are now in the hands of Houthis. And they have upgraded those missiles uh, to make them a little bit more capable than just some, you know, 1970s North Korean Scud missile. Uh, but, you know, it is pretty limited. And so the the kind of coastal land along uh, western Yemen is all flatlands and is easily controlled by the Saudi air power. And so if they take this port of Hodeida, it may be cutting a critical lifeline for the Houthis.
0: Right, and we'll get into this a little more later. But um, one of the big problems why they're starving is because they get most. The, uh, it's because of the import problems. So maybe you could touch on that a little bit. Just uh, why is it so hard for them to get imports?
1: Yeah, the the big thing going on with uh, the Houthis being prevented importing is that Saudi Arabia has a blockade of the country. Now, the United States helps to enforce that blockade. I've seen the United States admit that they force uh, what they call kind of the the right of navigation in that territory and that means by forcing these ships to go through inspections in saudi cities so they have to you know sail north to saudi arabia get inspected then go back down to the port oftentimes they're giving a runaround and forced to go back up to saudi arabia uh, to do another round of inspections and in that time you know sometimes medicine or fu- uh, food excuse me starts to expire And so now you have what little food the the Yemenis need uh, is now riding in a ship off the port. Now, this even happens in the southern port city of Aden. Now, Aden isn't quite as large of a port, so it's not as vital and and not as much uh, is offloaded there. However, even those ships it's in control of forces backed by Saudi Arabia, uh have to go through these ridiculous inspections and so that even you know further indicates to me at least that the you know this seems intentional to depriving yemen of food rather than actually trying to prevent
0: weapons from entering yemen um and they have they have the cereal production problem too and you mentioned this last time that they're growing a plant called uh quat and this is like a narcotic shrub i mean i think like 90 percent of yemenis chew this daily but it's not food it's not food so uh how are they eating there? Well, what do they eat?
1: Yeah, so leading up to the war in Yemen, I think Yemen um, imported about ninety percent of their staple foods, and so it was already just a country that relied on you know importing food after exporting. A lot of this was sent up after they accepted IMF loans, and then uh, they didn't do so well, so they converted a lot of their uh, cereal and uh i forget what their like kind of staple wheat type uh crop is called but they converted those into coffee uh fields and so uh, just a lot of yemen's own food production has, has was just you know repurposed prior to um you know the this war and that's fine because you know it, you know a world economy if you could grow coffee better than other countries then that's something you can make money on and import food But that doesn't work so well when your neighbors to the north and the world empire decide that you don't deserve any more food and start to block off your country. Um, The other issue is, and Patrick Coburn wrote about this pretty recently, is that Saudi Arabia has waged a pretty intentional food war against Yemen. They've destroyed critical infrastructure to gain food around the uh, cities and, you know, around Yemen. It's a very rural country, so bridges and roads are very important if you take out a road or a bridge. There may not be another way around. Or it may, you know, uh, Will Porter taught, who's a journalist friend of mine, taught to some Yemenis who told him, well, here's how it goes. Uh, you you Uh, you know, need to get to a hospital. It's normally two hours away, but now your car doesn't have enough fuel. And so it's, uh, you know, ends up being four hours because you got to take buses and stuff. But up in the middle of that, a bridge is taken out. So now it's eight hours. Oh, and then that hospital got destroyed. And so now it's 20 hours to the next nearest hospital. And so it just keeps moving further and further away. Saudi Arabia has also targeted a lot of uh, just food infrastructure, you talk about cereal, they target the cereal manufacturing plants. And so, you know, maybe part of the reason why they're they're not growing a whole lot of cereal anymore and they're growing quite instead is because there's just no way to process the cereal they grow, uh, you know. And then you also have a targeting of a lot of farms, even blowing up farm machinery and all this other kind of stuff that's not easily replaced. And so you're just left in a situation in Yemen where they really don't have the capability to produce their own food anymore. And the people there are struggling to survive, uh, you see picture after picture of these families who boil down leaves into this like green, disgusting paste and they force it down. Uh, But that's a lot better than looking at these little kids with the huge protruding bellies and expanded rib cages. Um, And knowing that any minute they're just going to,
0: that'll be it. I mean, by all means, this should be viewed as a genocide. This isn't. This isn't like there was a crop failure and they're hungry now. I mean, this is very intentional. Um, it, it just, just absolutely devastating. Now, another question I have: What is the relationship between the Houthis and Iran? Because from the perspective of Saudi Arabia, are they in a war with Iran? Yeah. So, I don't think that this has any actual
1: meaning um and i think it's just an excuse for saudi arabia for the united states and everybody else is iran's an easy enemy to demonize the houthis you know you got hezbollah hamas and the houthis so you know it's all h's and i guess it makes it easy you know for americans who don't know much about the middle east to kind of show their shoulders and say well they sound like, like iranian proxies um, but the Houthis are a political and a militia movement uh, originally started by a, a group of people that are zaidi Shia. Now, Islam, you know, in a lot of ways has some similar similarities to Christianity in that um, just because you're a Shia doesn't mean that you're a Shia like an Iranian Shia. You know, there's all kinds of different groups and subgroups. And actually, the kind of Shia that the in Islam, the Zaydi's practice is much closer to the Uh, islam that's practiced by sunnis than the iranians and so it's not exactly clear that just for religious purposes um some some guy who lives in um uh you know northern yemen is a zaidi would take the side of iran over saudi arabia um now the the houthis have been oppressed by the central government of yemen long before the saudis ever got involved uh the former ruler of yemen this is the guy who ruled yemen from the time it united in 1990 to about 2012 when hillary clinton helped orchestrate a coup to get him off the throne and that is ali abdullah salah and he actually after he got you know he waged a bunch of wars against the houthis with money given to him by bush and obama to help fight the terror wars um you know War is the health of the state kind of issue here. Decides, you know, to demonize and pit fights with the Houthis. However, it doesn't go very well, and the Houthis keep winning. Um, Salah's successor was uh, this guy named Mansour Hadi, And he also pit to fight with the Houthis, and it really didn't go well for him because the Houthis just rebelled and started taking a lot of area, including the capital city and Aden. This part's important because after Hadi pit to fight with the Houthis, uh, Iran advised the Houthis not to take the capital city of Sana'a. They said, you know, take back your land. But don't go any further than that, because then you're going to provoke a reaction from Saudi Arabia. And the Houthis went and took the capital city of Sana'a. And then the Iranians said, now, really, don't take any more uh, territory. And then they went, and they almost went all the way down to the southern uh, you know, coast there, the, the Gulf of Aden, and took even the southern city, which became the second capital of, of Aden. Uh, from, you know, what was left of the Hadi government, which was supported by, at that time, Saudi Arabia, the UAE, and the Qataris. Now, remember, there's, uh, in 2016, a split between Saudi Arabia, the UAE, and Qatar. And so Qatar kind of uh, gets left out of the whole Yemen war after that point. But it is important to remember that in the early days of the war, they were a part of that coalition. Now,
0: I know in 2015, there was a a Saudi-led coalition, um, of Arab states to defeat the Houthis in Yemen. So the coalition includes Kuwait, the United Arab Emirates, uh, Bahrain, Egypt, Morocco, Jordan, Sudan, and uh, Senegal. Um, What was the effect of that? Because that's three, four years into the the, um, Yemeni civil war.
1: Yeah. So they're able, I, I think, able to push the Houthis back a little bit immediately. They start to hire a bunch of Sudanese mercenaries and uh, then the battle lines kind of get drawn with uh, the government controlling uh, territory north till Taiz, and then the Houthis controlling everything north of that, including Hodeida. So uh, there's been very little exchange of territory since early. Uh, 2016, like I said, you've had the uh, Saudi, you know, with the Saudi airstrikes that, uh, you know, port the Yemeni government and there's Sudanese mercenaries and their Al-Qaeda fighters all teamed up together, making some progress up the coast there. But that's been very limited. They've had their supplies lines be cut a few times. Um, kind of right next to the coastal area, you have highlands and the Houthis rule the highlands. And they have some anti Armor missiles, and they fire them down from the highlands onto you know kind of the armor personnel carriers going up the coast all the time. And so while a little territory has exchanged hands, I really don't think there's any indication that uh, the stalemate's looking to be broken here. Um,
0: If you listen to, would would you say at this point that the Houthis are the dominating force, or are the does the Hadi government still have a majority rule of the country? Well.
1: If you look at the map of Yemen and you just look at territory, then you would be like, oh, it looks like the government's winning the war. But if you actually know uh, the the Houthis actually control the territory with the majority of the population.
0: Wow. OK. Now, I guess uh, here's like the main question, because we, we hear about Yemen a lot lately. And the main question should be, what can we actually do to help? Um, I know the U.N. partnered with a humanitarian group in an effort to raise nearly three billion to fund a plan. Uh, to provide life assistance. Um, I don't know if that ever went through, if that actually happened, but what can the average person do other than just raise awareness about intervention?
1: Well, I, I mean, you always look at donating. Uh, Doctors Without Borders, I know, does a lot of work in Yemen, and so, uh, and so, and they're just an organization that I'm pretty sure does a, a good amount of, like, you know, the money you actually give them goes to the places that they're, you know, going to support, so that's an option. The other thing going on here, and I think is very important, Is I I think with the Khashoggi situation and just with this growing momentum that's, you know, you would think since 2015, you know, the United States Congress could pay attention to genocide and stop it because, you know, there's something I haven't said so far in this show, which is absolutely important, is that the United States enables this war to happen. Without our political cover at the UN, without the U.S. provided midair refueling to the Saudi jets going to bomb, without the U.S. Navy helping to enforce the blockade, without continuing to sell them weapons, and of course logistical support, maintenance on the airplanes, and help uh, picking targets, uh, the U.S. plays an absolutely critical and essential role in this war. And so, withdrawing our support can end this war. Now, there's been several votes over you know, kind of the course of this war in Congress, mostly brought forward by the somewhat principled non-interventionist senators. Uh, look at Rand Paul, Mike Lee, Bernie Sanders, and Chris Murphy, who I believe is a Connecticut senator, have all taken issue with this uh, uh, thing and have introduced a, a variety of different legislations. Some was targeted at preventing weapons sales to Saudi Arabia. There's been a couple of uh, votes, one in the House and then one in the Senate, trying to vote the War Powers Act to prevent this from happening. Uh, recently, though, uh, it, we have a new bipartisan push uh, that I think is looking pretty strong. Uh, there was even an op-ed out in uh, the CNN from Ro Kahana and Elizabeth Warren you know, stating their opposition to this war. Elizabeth Warren was actually lied to by the State Department Uh, During some congressional testimony, uh, they told her that there, uh, I guess, wasn't a U.S. presence, but there's actually some U.S. boots on the ground in southern Saudi Arabia here. And so she's uh, on board now. Adam Schiff, who I know every is a terrible Russia gate guy, but he is an influential Democrat in the House, and he has introduced a new uh, bill, H. Con Res 138. This again invokes the War Powers Act, and so normally I wouldn't say rely on a political solution, but I do think we're coming to the near fifty fifty point in the United States Senate and House where we could possibly pass a resolution. Or at least gain so much momentum, and there'd be so much insurance that a resolution was going to pass that the Trump administration just ends like the mid air refueling and uh, maybe ends support for the blockade or something like that. You know, we could see a deal being cut. So I do think that, you know, while maybe in 2015, I wouldn't have suggested that the political solution is the way to go, I I think we're coming close to the point where there may be uh, some political pressure on Donald Trump. Uh, to start to wind down some of our uh, essential support here for Saudi Arabia
0: now, when people think about Saudi Arabia, I think the first thing they think about is oil, and it, it would it would seem obvious that if we just stop sending them weapons, that would heavily decrease what they could do. But if we're oil dependent on them, then it's also hard to break that tie now i I know numbers came out earlier this year that showed that the u s is a number one oil producer right now. Um, do you have any faith that maybe we could? Uh, become independent from saudi arabia saudi arabia oil wise oh yeah
1: absolutely here's the yeah I, i don't know actually what the breakdown is of how much oil the u.s imports from saudi arabia i don't think it's that much anymore and it certainly doesn't have to be i mean Look at the like kind of the countries that the U.S. is picking fights with right now. I mean, Obama destroyed Libya, so that's not all Donald Trump's fault. But he could still, you know, work towards a solution there rather than trying to impose this made-up UN-backed government on the country, and that way Libya could start pumping oil because that's a couple uh, million barrels of oil a day. They're obviously targeting Maduro in uh, Venezuela, and I'm not a fan of communists whatsoever, but. If you you know Saudi Arabia is committing a genocide in Yemen, so if you gotta look at you know a group uh, a country to buy oil from the communists in Venezuela aren't the worst people in the world, uh, he put the oil sanctions back on Iran, and here's another country who the United States could buy plenty of oil from, and so I think Donald Trump actually kind of is shooting himself in the foot with his foreign policy right now, being so hawkish against Venezuela and iran at the same time and putting all these sanctions on these two countries and taking all this you know world oil off the market uh especially right in front of the midterms i think is probably limiting what he could actually do against saudi arabia right now just because i i get i would guess that with all the iranian market or iranian oil coming off the market if the saudis really want to jack up oil prices they they could
0: right right now, another detail we kind of left out um, related to that journalist that was killing Saudi Arabia. Didn't Saudi Arabia like send us like $100 million? I, I don't even know what that was related to, but it was just kind of odd. Like, Saudi Arabia sent us $100 million.
1: <laughs> yeah, I read that story, and I w- I'm... I was waiting a couple days to see if like, maybe there's an explanation. I don't know. Maybe Saudi Arabia owes the United States money for some weapons that we financed for them. And it was a scheduled payment time. I mean like these innocent kind of things do happen and they're just kind of Coincidentally timed and and stuff like that. So any story like that, I like to kind of just wait on. But yeah, that could be very interesting. It's it seems like just such a cheap bribe, though. A hundred million dollars to the United States or twenty one trillion dollars in debt. I yeah. mean, what's a hundred million dollars going to do? You would think that the the, the uh, bribe would have to at least be like to the Trump Foundation or something like that. I'm totally um,
0: speculating, but I read recently that. NASA increased its budget by like 150 million. It was just kind of like, huh, like a, that seems kind of convenient. Um, <laughs> I guess two more things I want to touch on is the AUMF, which is the Authorization of Use of Military Force Act. I think that was enacted in like 2001, 2002. You've mentioned in the past that this shouldn't really apply to Yemen. I mean, they're they're taking it out of context, so it does apply to Yemen. What's up with that?
1: Yeah. So the the 2001 AUMF is the one that says that. Uh, We give President Bush the power to fight Al-Qaeda and the people who uh, supported them, which was the Taliban. So this was really the authorization to use force in Afghanistan. Now, since it says Al-Qaeda in there, uh, Bush and Obama were like, hmm, I see Al-Qaeda all over the Middle East and North Africa. So we could bomb in all these places. And so this has led to bombings, I I think, in at least eight countries, possibly nine And then U.S. military actions, like kinetic actions on the ground in like 14 or 17 countries. It's really impressive. I can't even name them all. Uh, But specifically around the Middle East, you know, Somalia, Syria, Yemen, uh, some of the action uh, now against isis in iraq what you know was authorized by that force and so this is what the united states has used to get a drone war in yemen since i believe 2004 bush carried out a drone strike in yemen but really obama starting in 09 this was uh, Future CIA director John Brennan's baby—that uh, he had this targeted drone program and was just assassinating people at his own will uh, during the Obama administration—and in the start of your story, you talk about the kids being scared of airplane noises uh, because uh, of the the constant drone war. This is all Obama's fault. That you know part wasn't Donald Trump.
0: Yeah, and that now, was the last topic I wanted to touch on was the drones. I I, I was curious if you know what the state is with are we st- are we still drone bombing them to this day?
1: Yeah. You don't read many uh, drone strikes or raids going on against him. It's really not since the very start of the Trump presidency when he had that botched raid that killed the eight-year-old daughter of Anwar al shot in the neck died over two hours in her grandmother's arms uh that was like in the first couple hours of the trump administration absolutely horrific you know the, the media spent like a month hyper focusing on donald trump the size of donald trump's inauguration rally all while ignoring that a little american girl had been shot in the neck by another american in yemen in a raid that seems to lack any authorization whatsoever. Uh, Really no detailed planning, but that was never the focus. Uh, But yeah, so that AUMF and all these actions uh, is supposed to go against AQAP, Al Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula, or the ISIS affiliate in uh, Yemen, which is very closely aligned to AQAP. And, you know, just the way all these politics work out, it's not like Uh, Syria, where they fought each other, so, anyways, uh, the Houthis are not AQAP, they're not even Sunnis, like I said, they're Shias, and so it doesn't in any way make sense that these guys could just be tapped on to the 2001 AUMF, especially since they're the long standing ally or enemies, excuse me, of ISIS and AQAP, and in fact, if anybody in the Yemen war, has been fighting on the side of Al Qaeda and ISIS. It's been uh, particularly the Emirates cutting deal with, deals with them, and they're a part of the coalition that the U.S. is a part of. It's the you know Hadi government the, the Yemeni U.S. bad fighters in Yemen are the ones that are you know uh, enlisting the Al Qaeda and the jihadist types within their ranks. And so it's really a mystery how the the 2001 AUMF could apply to Yemen. Now, the argument that's been used by the leadership in the Congress to prevent the War Powers Act resolutions from going forward, and these would be the actions that stopped the war, um, has been to say that the mid-air refueling, that the blockade, that um, the the intelligence and the targeting and all this don't apply Uh, You know, our our presidential powers that we could just send our troops wherever I want. So I guess Donald Trump has the power to, you know, fly a plane above Yemen that's going to refuel an American made fighter jet uh, just flown by a Saudi prince and then drop an American made bomb on Yemen. And this is just all OK above board within presidential war powers. Uh, but the important thing to you know, realize here is that no matter what American law says, the people on the receiving end of the bombs, the Yemeni people, they say death to America because they believe this is America's war. When the bombs come down, they say Lockheed Martin. They're in English. When they look up and see the planes, they're American-made planes. They know the Saudis cannot do this on their own. And so, you know, that's important just to remember for all the blowback kind of reasons that the people of Yemen really believe this is an American war against them.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's just tragic. Um, You know, starvation is half of it. But I guess the other half is just living in fear daily that a plane flying overhead might be about to drone strike you. And you you mentioned uh, previously that just being in like a group of people is suspicious. like you can't even do that. So they're just conditioned to be scared and they're and they're starving. So, yeah, that makes total sense. And I'm sure they're not. I'm sure they're completely aware that Saudi Arabia is being funded by us. Um, Yeah. Totally
1: tragic. Just to add to that real quick, there's been a couple times in Yemen where they've had either rallies like, you know, like an independent, say, rally, uh, or they've had rallies after major attacks on them. There was a funeral home in October of 2016 that was hit with multiple airstrikes by Saudi Arabia, killing over 150 people. But then the, you know, the jets will come in. They won't drop bombs, but they'll do like sonic booms over the rallies and stuff like that. So really just talking that? about the psychological fear. Uh, the the planes break the sound barrier, and it makes a loud crack.
0: Is it like so the, on purpose, though?
1: Yeah, yeah, definitely. Oh, okay. It, it's psychological warfare. Yeah. Uh, oh, you did want to mention the drone. So just an interesting thing going on is the UAE is using Chinese-made armed drones in Yemen right now, and they even use them to carry out a assassination of... The political leader of the Houthi movement. So this would be the guy that's at like the political leader of the northern Yemen area. And they blew him up, uh, you know, and, and targeted assassination, which should it comes close to violating international law. Right. I mean, it's one thing to blow up the commander of the Houthis or something like that. He's engaged in a war. But this guy is supposed to be, you know, kind of the political leader of the country. You would think if you're actually looking to like settle down with a peace agreement, he would have to be part of it. You know, this is this is their political leadership. And uh, not to go too far down this, but a, a story that just broke by BuzzFeed News. Back in 2015 and early uh, 2016, the UAE was hiring American contractors. And they gave them a list of 32 targets and people to go kill a lot of imams and different, uh, that's like a a religious person, Islamic religious person, and different uh, leadership factions, including the leader of al-Islam, which is the Reform Party or the Muslim Brotherhood group in Yemen, uh, and targeting them with these American American contractors. And so these guys, these uh, like American former CIAs, special forces guys, went to Yemen, hired by the UAE, and killed a bunch of Islamic uh, clerics and uh, attempted to kill this guy Mayo. Who was, you know, like I said, the head of the bro- Muslim Brotherhood? Uh, I think they like got some guy got scared and fired off a shot early, and the plan got botched. No Americans died, but still, I mean, this is like quite the crazy thing, right? It's something that we have to talk about is that our contractors, Americans, are running around Yemen, paid by the UAE, killing people who aren't even militants. It's not like the they're tracking it. down
0: Al Qaeda. They're basically hitmen. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the whole concept of drones is creepy because i do they use satellites to like look down on the area and scope it out, then send out the drone because it's just it's so creepy thinking that a guy sitting behind a computer or his workstation is just all right, you know i'm gonna I'm, that guy right there is dead and press a button and, and it happens it's, it's at least if you go to war and you enter a country you have to like you have to aim correctly and shoot and you know do your own thing, but this is totally creepy the way it occurs. Right. Well,
1: some something I read recently I thought was interesting just on this whole topic of using, you know, drones and contractors and whatever is just that uh, contractors actually fly armed American drones. So you have some guy that's not a U.S. Air Force, uh, you know, soldier, but rather a contractor play, paid, I don't know, maybe Halliburton or whatever, uh, trains this guy. And the only thing he can't do is press the button that fires the missile. So. Wow.
0: Well, this has been a great episode. I hope the viewers get a lot out of this because a lot of people have asked recently, you know, what, what the hell is going on in Yemen and what can be done. So, we definitely covered a bunch of topics here. Like I said, I'm going to link to Foreign Policy uh, Focus episode 159, I believe it is, like your Yemen cheat sheet. I'm going to link to our last Yemen episode. I'm going to link to that Scott Horn um, article that you mentioned, if you can link that to me in a bit. And Scott Horn did a few episodes recently on Yemen. So, I'll link to those. Uh, can you think of anything else I can link to?
1: No, I think that should uh, just about cover. And, you know, thank you so much for having me on your show. It is a really important issue. And, you know, there's a real, real tragedy going on right now in Yemen. And like I was saying, I think it's finally time that something may happen about that. You know, three and a half years is way too long for a genocide to go on. But even in the amoral American empire, I think after a certain amount of time, people will take notice, especially when uh, Saudi Arabia is not gained favorable press uh, for the Khashoggi thing. So I think it's all, you know, maybe just a, a great set of circumstances right here uh, to take advantage. And, you know, maybe we don't end U.S. arms sales to Saudi Arabia, but if we could just cut out the mid air fueling, that, that would make a huge difference, I think.
0: Definitely. Well, thank you so much for coming on, Kyle. I meant to mention this in the introduction, but you, along with Scott Horn and Will Porter, just uh, I consider foreign policy experts, you guys. Obviously, I I could let you go on forever, and you could just go on detail after detail, and you know all the names. I can't even pronounce these names, so uh, you're a gem in the movement, Kyle. Thank you so much for coming on.